everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey. Acid rain, acid rain. Nockreiner? <laughs> okay. Uh, artist. That's all I thought of. Is... Nockreiner. <laughs> I, I right, don't yeah. go by Corey anymore, Mark. I'm now symbol. Symbol plus sign. <laughs> with a bang at um, the end. Today's episode, we will be discussing exactly what Corey means by acid rain. Uh, as well as a roundup of tips and uh, tools for, not I guess maybe not tools, tips for MSPs and MSP customers on how to defend against cyber attacks targeting them. We sneak a few. You you and I add a few tools to their, for some of their tips. Some of their tips, we, we point out a tool or two. That sounds right. Say soon. Yeah. And we round it all out with a couple of critical vulnerabilities from the latest Microsoft Patch Tuesday. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and jam our way in. Jam that acid rain. Or actually, I guess the acid rain is doing the jam. hey So it's another week on the podcast, which means it's another CISA alert that we get to talk about. I, I got to say, like, it feels like CISA has been pumping out these alerts over the last like two months, and they've all been generally pretty good like i'll be at typically high level when it comes to the tips but at least on very pertinent topics considering what we and i guess they specifically are seeing out there yeah they definitely seem to be more prolific in writing stuff very regularly now yeah uh so just last week cisa and all the other five eyes organizations released an advisory titled protecting against cyber threats to managed service providers and their customers uh, the short code for it is aa22- 131A, if you want to look it up yourselves. Because that, that that short code is so much easier to remember. <laughs> I, I, I suppose they could probably rewind and transcribe it if they wanted to, but you're right. Um, so anyways, the advisory lays out its purpose fairly early on uh, with this quote basically saying, the UK, Australian, uh, Canadian, New Zealand, and US cybersecurity authorities expect malicious cyber actors including state-sponsored advanced persistent threat groups to step up their targeting of MSPs in their efforts to exploit provider customer network trust relationships. Basically, they're saying, you know, and they link to a bunch of previous advisors they put out of all these threats relating to MSPs and threat actors going after them to get to their customers and saying, this is basically just the beginning. We expect them to continue on and continue increasing. And they break down the advisories, basically like a solid four to five pages, I'd say, of just defensive guidances in a bunch of different categories, uh, both for MSPs and customers that work with MSPs as well, too. They kind of for every single category, they give like a high level what they're talking about and then some bulleted tips specifically for those two categories of organizations. Um so I wanted to take some time here to go over some of their tips because as we said in past CISA alerts, they do tend to be high level, but they're at least still useful. And it's interesting in this scenario, seeing their specific guidance for MSPs and their customers. By um, the way, before we don't dive into the tips, one thing that I feel is a little different about this is they're not very specific about the attacks. I think there's things we can read from the, the tips, but... You know, I, they, they, they talk about MSPs being targeted. They talk about once the, the, using your own credentials, like typically finding some way to get a credential that they use to get in. But they don't go 
into a huge detail about the how it could be fishing it could be a lot of things but obviously they're i assume they're referring to a lot of the generic in different ways that msps were attacked in the past which was everything from zero days and software that msps were prone to use to just basic phishing to get a privileged credential so i just wanted to point out you know with them not being exactly specific about how the, the root cause of entry might be in the attacks they see. It suggests the attackers are doing different things depending on the targets. They're targeting MSPs, but then they have to enumerate and figure out what might work in a different situation. So I just found it's, it, it's interesting that they're not really going into a ton of detail with what, like, it, it doesn't seem to be a common attack across the board, a common vulnerability in the product. It's just these bad guys know MSPs are a high return target because they get into lots of customers. So they're going to try lots of different ways to get in, although often it might involve credentials. So I think that's why the recommendations are going to be so wide because it's generally just applying good security to your whole organization, as we'll talk about. But even like, even though they are wide and relatively high level, there are some pretty good tidbits sprinkled throughout here as well, too. And even ones that you might not think about, uh, at least not on a daily basis. And so to give you an idea of what some of the tips are, let's just start with the first category, uh, which is prevent initial compromise. And they actually lift, uh, list four specific things that MSPs and customers should do. Uh, the four bullet points being improve security of vulnerable devices, especially VPN solutions, protect internet facing services, defend against brute force and password spraying, and defend against phishing. And they actually list out eight separate articles that these various Five Eyes organizations have published just recently even on exactly how to protect these systems and uh, and, and actually enact some of these protections they're saying for limiting that uh, potential initial compromise. Um, the next category they had was enable slash improve monitoring and logging processes. Uh, where they basically say it can take months before incidents are detected. So they recommend all organizations store most important logs for at least six months. Uh, they recommend following a linked article from the NCSC on guidance on what you should be doing for logging. So what critical systems, services, access, whatever you should be logging. And then they spell out some specific instructions for both MSPs and customers. So for MSPs, they say, you should log the delivery infrastructure used to provide services to the customer. Also log both internal customer network activity as appropriate uh, and contractually agreed upon. You don't want to just log everything unless your customers actually allow you to. Uh, from the customer side, they say you should enable effective monitoring and logging on your systems. And specifically, if you're engaging with an MSP to provide those services, make sure that your contract requires a few things like implementing a comprehensive security event management, so like a SIM or a similar solution, uh, provide visibility uh, to customers of logging activity, and notify the customer of confirmed or suspected security events and incidents incurring not just on the customer network, but also the MSP's network as well, including administrative networks, and send these to a SOC for analysis and triage. This one actually probably deserves some chatting about because they're basically saying, MSPs need to make sure that they're transitioning towards MSSP and have some sort of sock to back up and analyze these events that are occurring. 
Yeah, and I think it's a result of, uh, I mean, the type of businesses that go to MSPs are customers we at WatchGuard serve, mid-markets and SMBs. Uh, I think you would find at the average smaller organization, this is a common, logging is a common missing thing, or at least aggregated monitoring and alerting on logging. Like all of us probably have basic security controls, and but a lot of companies may not use the same vendor all over the place. So you might turn on logs on one system, or maybe you don't, by the way. A lot of times we find that people don't enable more than the basic logging that's just built into an appliance. They don't necessarily set up log servers. So just the idea of making sure, one, that all your security controls and other controls, I think it's cool that they talk about what you should be logging, are logging properly. But more importantly, if you really want to monitor this, you have to, it's good to try to get all those logs normalized into one place, which is really what the SIMish, the, the security incident event management system you talked about is having. And that is really what institutes a SOC when you have all of that aggregated and normalized in one place. And then you have people who actually sit there and look at it. And I think for smaller organizations, this is often a missing part of security completely. And I think that's why they put so much attention on what customers should make sure MSPs are doing. I mean, if I'm an MSP, this, this is a, a good opportunity too, right? I mean, this is, they're not doing this. If you can, can set up a SOC and add a, a little S to your MSP, there's people out there that the government's even telling them you should be alerting on this so that if you can provide a service that fills in all those checkpoints to what, you know, being able to keep the events for six months to give the customer a little visibility in and, and be the person that alerts them when you see things. I think a lot of small to medium businesses have trouble doing this on their own. So, yeah, I think it's it's definitely pretty cool. Yeah, 100%. Uh, next one is just enforce MFA, which... I feel like every single CISA alert ends with this. Um, they did every single one, one of our alerts and every single, <laughs> I mean, I can't, it seems so obvious now, but it's kind of depressing how I, well, I would say every company probably uses MFA in one to two places. I, I'm not sure every company has MFA across all employees. And uh, it's just, it's scary how many of these attacks, especially some of the MSP ones seem to start with, leaked or stolen credentials but anyways sorry i interrupted keep going they did spell out one like bit of a detail in here too where they said specifically russian state-sponsored apt actors have recently demonstrated the ability to exploit default mfa protocols and they say that organizations should review configuration policies to protect against fail open and re-enrollment scenarios basically if an attacker is able to get a hold of a an account that's just been provisioned or an account that's already in existence and go and reprovision a new MFA credential that could allow them to get past some of these protections. Yeah, so. and the, the re-enrollment is, is just the MFA similar to how you would, uh, you know, request a forgotten password. Uh, and, or set up a new uh, phone. Yeah, and, and usually it'd be nice to have an IT barrier, like a person, an IT that kind of says, okay, I'm you have to go through me so I can do this properly with you. But I think a lot of MFA solutions for 
uh, customer ease of use have user-based kind of automated re-enrollment capabilities. And I think those can be done very securely, but I think it's being exploited in the same way to forget your password is. And the, what you're really doing instead of forget your password is forget my token. There's some sort of token you were given for the MFA, and it's just finding a way to confirm who you are minus the MFA, because if you've forgotten your token, you don't have MFA anymore. So it, how do you automate, if you have a self-service portal for that, you need to make sure that it does a good job of validating since MFA won't be available during that, that re-enrollment before it actually sends off a new token to that user. Yep. Uh, the next two categories they have are really very similar and they revolve around zero trust. So the first one is manage internal architecture risk and segregate internal networks. Uh, they've got tips. So for MSPs, they say you should review and verify all connections between internal systems, customer systems, and other networks, and specifically segregate customer data sets away from each other, as well as from internal company networks. And then from customers, you should review and verify all connections between internal systems, MSP systems, and other networks, and use a dedicated VPN or alternative secure access method to connect to VPN, uh, MSP infrastructure and limit all network traffic to and from that MSP from that dedicated secure connection. Basically, like exactly what Target should have been doing with that whole breach of making sure that you don't just have wide open access to everything. Yeah, and it's something I think you've heard us repeat on this podcast over and over. There's too many flat networks out there. There's too many, it's the easy way, right? I mean, all of us, if we're busy and we want to create a network for a, a organization, you just create one flat network and call it a day. The problem is you're not offering gateways, segments that have an opportunity to do a little security review between those segments. So to me, this is taking all the flat networks and trying to either virtually through VLANs or physically, you know, redesign your network so that there's gate segments that people have to hop through. And that doesn't mean that traffic doesn't pass between those segments. In fact, you have it set up so these computers can share the data they're supposed to between each other. But you can apply the second part, which Mark will get to. Yeah, next. so the part two of this is apply the principle of least privilege. So they recommend using a tiering model for administrative accounts so that they don't all have uh, unnecessary access or privileges, only use full admin when strictly necessary, and consider the use of uh, time-based privileges to restrict uh, use further. MSPs specifically should avoid default administrative privileges and customers should ensure their MSPs apply this principle to both provider and customer networks. Which really, like you just were hinting at, this is part two of the whole zero trust approach. And while a lot of that least privilege is going to be user-based least privilege, you can also think of it from a network level. In a flat network, there's no least privilege because every computer can, or there's no network-based least privilege anyways, in that every computer can directly talk to every other IP in its local network. But even without the user identity portion, if you've segmented your network, you can apply a port-based least privilege, an IP-based least privilege. So yes, network in segment A might need to talk to a computer in segment B, but you can say this traffic, this particular, I don't know, database application has to work, but everything else is unimportant and doesn't need to work. You can apply a little networking least privilege with, you know, port and access control lists. So, uh, yeah, you, you summed it up and this is really those two things together are, are a lot of what zero trust is, is based on. Um, and yeah, some of that least privilege will go all the way up to identity, but do it on a network level, do it on every level you can. <laughs>
The next one is one I feel like just organizations in general probably don't realize like they may not be following this one well enough. Uh, so this is while this is geared towards MSPs and customers of them, like this is something all organizations should really follow. And that's deprecate obsolete accounts and infrastructure. So they specifically recommend periodically review your internet act attack surface and take steps to limit it, such as disabling user accounts when personnel transitions and disable unused systems and services. Basically eliminate that IT debt you have, clean up old systems that are no longer required. Yeah, and I think is some of the the hard part about this, you know, I think a, a company like ours, you know, me and Mark are, are now the, the 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 security office for WatchGuard too. And and we have very, you know, procedural processes for both adding new employees, giving them the proper permissions, but for uh, removing employees as they leave the company. But I think some of the chinks in the armor that all companies need to think about those processes work great for all the the services that IT and the security office know about because they're all using uh, you know active directory accounts but one of the things that happens in companies especially when SaaS and the ability for any department to to add things now is Maybe when you remove a user from AD, it, it removes 90% of their control. But one department, I, I don't know, say it's engineering, you know, set up a small lab with uh, 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 its own GitHub and they manually added a user for this employee that uh, wasn't part of Active Directory because they're maintaining some little local database of users. So I, I think that's sometimes how some of these obsolete accounts, you know, step one is to make sure you have a really good procedure for how you remove the account privileges of, of every employee or contractor that leaves so that you can do it quickly and right away and not forget about it. But I think the second step of that is make sure you've done enough asset and data inventories to know to find these kind of hidden local databases that some departments might have set up on their own because they may not be part of your depreciation process and it might be the old user account that someone found this is on something that IT didn't necessarily realize was there set up and I think the same goes for infrastructure too we always hear of Oh, some contractor came in and we had to put up a temporary server for them. Uh, that job happened quickly, but we didn't. And but but then months went by and we actually forgot to close the firewall port and 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 shut down that server. So I think this comes down to governments and procedures and 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 doing a lot of discovery to find the missing pieces that uh, there's a lot that sometimes doesn't go through IT, not that there's so many software services available through the cloud. Yeah. Very well said. Uh, the next one is a bit of a gimme, and that's apply updates. So, But they specifically say uh, prioritize patching vulnerabilities that are included in CISA's catalog of known exploited vulnerabilities, as opposed to only those with high CVSS scores that have not been exploited and may never be exploited. And I feel like that is a differentiator that a lot of companies potentially don't follow. Like it's easy to go run you know, a Nessus scan and see all the red on there and go, oh, I got to patch all this. Um, where it's a little more difficult and nuanced if you, you know, do some actual analysis and realize, okay, so X, Y, and Z are the only ones that are actually being exploited. Those are absolutely the ones that we need to take care of quickly. And maybe we can deprioritize some of these other ones while we focus on 
other fires burning under yeah, the house. Yeah, this comes down to having a very up-to-date and deep data audit of, of your organization. Because the point of the data audit isn't just to find where all the data is, but to give it some sort of business priority. As, as you pointed out very well, some data is the keys to the kingdom or the critical data that needs to work just for your e-commerce to run. But you're going to find data out there that might be a little bit important, but it's not really a big deal if it's gone. And then when you, you know, after you've done that data assessment, you know where everything is, but more importantly, you know what's important to your business and what isn't by different levels of, of I don't know, severity or value. Then you can start to do a better business continuity disaster recovery project in that you can take all those different data stores and start to apply different RTOs and RPOs. If you haven't uh, RTO, whoa, let's hope I can do the acronyms. Uh, time to, what is it? Time to re recovery, recover time is RTO. Recovery and time objective. Objective. And, and the other one is recovery point, point objective. objective. And time is obvious how quick you need to get it back. Recovery point objective is, you know, sometimes your backups are a little stale. You can't back up every second. So for this data to be valuable, do I need it to be within 15 minutes of when it was last lost or do I need it to be within a day or is two weeks old okay? So that's what the RTO and the RPO is. And depending on the value of the data, what you're using for the data, I think Mark's point is some data, maybe the recovery time objective or RTO, shoot, it doesn't matter if it takes a week to restore because this is not important. And by the way, I don't care if I lose a day of data either because it's it's not real time. Whereas some other data set, I need that backup in five minutes and I need it to, to be within 15 minutes of the last update. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to lose millions in sales for my e-commerce site. So to me, you know, a, a, that's a big part of your backup strategy you know if you haven't done the hard work of making sure you know all of your data and its value yet you have a probably have a very haphazard basic backup and recovery policy whereas if you do this work you're going to know exactly what data needs to be done quickly and then you can put you just then it's just a matter of finding the right methods of backup that work properly right you know you can virtualize a lot of this so things that recover in five minutes can recover that way whereas you can save money and time by the stuff you don't need you don't have to back it up as aggressively so Corey's rant on uh data auditing was the great segue into the next tip which was backup systems and data basically make sure you've got a good golden image for critical systems in the event they need to be rebuilt and store these isol isolated from networks that could enable the spread of ransomware. So again, apply updates, which again, knowing what you have, where the data is, what you need to actually apply, and then that'll help out with the backup and restoration portion of it too. I think the big portion of that is actually test it as well. Like having the best backup system in the world is great, but it's no good if you haven't actually tested that you can restore from it in the time of an emergency. Um, next tip was develop and exercise incident response and recovery plans where they say maintain up-to-date hard copies of plans to ensure responders can access them should the network be inaccessible and MSPs should develop and regularly exercise internal incident response and recovery plans and encourage their customers to do the same. That kind of falls in with the last one as well too. They're basically making sure you've got a plan so that when the inevitable occurs, you're able to respond quickly and get every, the lights back online as quickly as possible. Like this isn't stuff you want to be trying to figure out in the moment. 
as all of your systems are down or catching on fire and your customers are uh, trying to get a hold of your non-existent phone lines because those are down as well too. I'm trying to remember what NASA calls them, but I always think of NASA when I think of this part of the the, the playbook. I, I feel like in, in early space, you know, and when astronauts were tying themselves to big explosives, they, they literally on their, you know, spacesuit had these little playbooks that were literally check marks. If this situation, you get this warning to popping up uh, on, on your heads up display on the system, you flip to a certain page and it's literally a check mark. Do this, do this, do this. And the value of that is if anything's happening while you're attached to a, a, a controlled explosion, it's probably a big deal. And you don't have time to try to remember or figure out what to do. You just want that exact check. You just want to look, okay, flip to this page, check. I've switched this switch, check. I now put, turn this dial to five, whatever the playbook is. You want it It's like a terrifying choose your own adventure book. Yeah, except you're not choosing. It's literally listing exactly. You don't get to say, I want to go to page 10 or page 20, or I guess they could be flowcharts depending on what you get returned <laughs> into HUD. But for the most part, you don't even have to think. You just have to go step by step through what it's telling you to do. You know, flip a switch, look for a response and do it. And that's what you want your your recovery plan to be. And really the combination of the backups with this incident response recovery plan is, is the combination of BCDR or business continuity disaster recovery. Yep. Next tip, uh, there's only three left including this. So hang in there. Uh, understand and proactively manage supply chain risk. So for MSPs, you should understand your own supply chain risks and manage the cascading risk it poses to customers. And for customers on the flip side, uh, you should set clear network security expectations with your MSPs, understand the access that they have to your networks and the data that it houses as well. And I think if I would add to this, I think you could, the, for MSP, they could do things that we do as a vendor, which is vendor risk assessment. And for customers, they obviously do partner and MSP risk assessment. And that, you know, a lot of the targeted MSP attacks were because of specific issues and specific tools that MSPs use. And by the way, that's not to say those tools are horrible or that they are really bad for having an issue, but you need to make sure that as you bring in partners to your your MSP, as you bring in new tools that you're using to help protect your customers, you should know about their security. You should know how often do they have vulnerabilities? What do they do to fix their vulnerabilities? How quickly they do they do it? You know, what's their patching process? Uh, do they have security certifications? If they're a cloud provider, do they have ISO 2701 or, or some other you know, a respectable certification that proves that they've audited their network and are doing are doing all the right things essentially. So, you know, as we use tools, we're introducing ourselves to vulnerabilities that the, those tools may add. Uh, but if we pick vendors who, you know, every tool is going to have issues. So you just want to pick vendors and, and people to work with that, you know, take it seriously enough that they they fix things, they get things done and do, they do their best to secure it. So, yeah, I think this is great advice. And I think you'll see vendor risk assessment is actually something that's becoming very industry term. And there's there's a. Uh, tools out there now that are all about helping you do vendor risk assessment and giving you questionnaires and things you could send to new partners you might start working with to kind of understand what their security process is like to figure out whether or not you trust them enough before you sign up with them. 100%. 
Uh, second to last one is just promote transparency. So MSPs should provide clear expectations of their services that the customer are purchasing and the ones the customer is not purchasing and all contingencies for incident response and recovery. And for customers, you should make sure that you've got a thorough understanding of what the MSPs are contractually going to do for you and have security and have like address any things that fall outside of what the MSPs are taking care of. Um, also, make sure that your contracts detail how and when MSPs notify customers of an incident uh, that might affect the customer's environment. Yeah, I feel like that one's a bit of an obvious one. So we'll move on to the last one, which is manage account authentication and authorization, which is basically proactively search for, uh, or I guess one of the main tips they had, which I thought was really cool, um, and one that I, for some reason, hadn't thought of, but proactively search for what they call intrusion canaries. So periodically review logs after performing password changes across all sensitive accounts, where because in theory, if someone had compromised an account, they were using it, you change the password, the legitimate user will continue chugging along just fine, but any illegitimate access will suddenly show up as a bunch of authentication or authorization failures. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I haven't thought about that either, but uh, if you do ever see users change passwords, it's great to immediately look for failures. I mean, by the way, maybe accept a few from the user themselves because as they're relearning the password, they might make a mistake. But in this case, you're looking for regular ones from things that aren't the user, Just and that would be a sign of that user's password was you know, compromise at some point is actively was used until the change. And now, you know, someone might be inside the system. Uh, they, they've lost some of the access now, but you at least know that they might have gotten something and you can go back and start to review some logs to see what that user's been doing until the password changed. Yep. But overall, they recommend just uh, restricting which accounts the MSP has access to and then regularly reviewing that access to to make sure that the principles of least privilege still apply. So overall, I'd say very good article. Uh, like you said, very wide and high level at some yeah. points. I mean, Not if really we're being honest, any specific threat, but yeah, very applicable. Every single one of these tips is, uh, I would say, it's practically a best practice. It's what what the security industry is saying for a while. But I think it's good to remind you the reason we really need to do these best practices is people are being targeted and, and obviously are not always up to snuff with the best practices and are, are being uh, breached because of it. So even if it is all tips that we repeat often, it's, it's good to remember that. Some of these tips do take some work, but uh, you should understand that if you don't do the work, you, you could be one of the headlines and, and the government themselves are seeing these victims being targeted every yep. day today. So moving on from the CISA alert, uh, last Tuesday was Microsoft Patch Tuesday, and there were quite a few interesting ones in there. Uh, namely, there were eight critical vulnerabilities and three actively exploited zero days as a part of this patch roundup. I think something like 70 or 73 or 80 total flaws, although like you say, eight really critical. Yep. And there's two that I wanted to cover uh, because they're getting actually a decent amount of coverage both from attackers and researchers. Uh, the first one is a actively exploited flaw, uh, CVE 2022-26925, uh, which is a spoofing bug that affects the Windows local system authority, which is basically how a user logs into a local system um, in a Windows environment. And it could allow an attacker to authenticate as any uh, approved user as a part of a NTLM relay attack. 
Uh, the one caveat to this one is while they do see it actively exploited, uh, it does require an attacker to be positioned as a attacker in the middle on this. So it actually has a little bit of attack complexity. It's once they've already potentially established themselves on your network or on a system, uh, it allows them to then elevate their level of access within that network. But I would say, you know, in our internet security report, you've heard us talk a lot about Mimikatz and uh, what's the other one? Windows Credential Editor. These are these are pieces of, I mean, they're actually, I would say, grayware and that good guys use them uh, as examples too. But this is malware. This is usually stuff found on a computer that was already being compromised. But one of the things they do do is sit there and stiff, sniff the network. So to me, this is the type of bug that I think is ripe to be added as a capability in those tools. So there's already tools to sniff things like hashes and do pass the hash, but they fixed a lot of those. But now that this bug is out, I, I almost would be surprised not to see uh, this particular exploit not being added to Mimikatz or one of those other Windows credential editors just because the way they're designed is one of their options is to sit on a computer and watch the network to see if they can do some of that attacker in the middle traffic capture in order to to replay or, or spoof credentials. Yep. Uh, the other one was actually a, in a, a, a researcher ex, uh, exploited, researcher reported flaw uh, that they reported back to Microsoft in mid-December. This one was CVE 2022-26923. Um, and the researcher actually published their disclosure alongside this patch. Uh, and it's really interesting how this one works. Um, so it's a privilege escalation vulnerability in Active Directory's certificate services that enables any authenticated user to basically become a domain administrator. Um, I'd highly recommend checking out the, the research paper. I'll link it in the, the case notes on this. Uh, the fancy name they gave it is uh, certified, uh, <laughs> instead of certified. Um, but basically, it boils down to uh, any user can modify a combination of the DNS host name and the service principal name parameters within a service a certificate request in order to obtain a certificate for any entity on the domain, including the domain controller itself. And then you can use that certi certificate as part of Kerberos's PK init authentication method in order to authenticate as that host. So there's some like standards that Microsoft follows when it comes to verifying the the, the values, uh, the extensions within a certificate request. But there's a bit of a mistake in between verifying certain ones of them where you can basically request a certificate for any entity. Uh, I'm not doing the research paper justice and how thorough it is. and how actually easy it is to exploit at the end of the day. And the researcher actually put out their own tool um, called CERT, oh shoot, what's it called? Um, CERT IPY, which is basically a way to automatically exploit this on a vulnerable uh, Active Directory environment. Uh, they'd reported it back to Microsoft uh, about halfway through December or so. Um, and it was just as of May 10th now patched by Microsoft. Um, and since that patch, there's been quite a few, uh, at least a lot of activity on the Twitter space that I follow of researchers developing other tools to exploit this fairly trivial privilege escalation vulnerability. And I feel like like we had mentioned, uh, it was probably about a year and a half ago on one blog post that we read, where a penetration tester pointed out that Basically, if they can get any account, if they can get a account on an Active Directory environment, they have a 100% success rate 
of elevating that access to domain admin levels. And this is just one of those many relatively easy to exploit flaws to enable that. Yeah. I would say this makes it a little too easy. Like I, I remember seeing some DEF CON that it confirmed that once I have one basic account, even an internal guest, I can get the domain within. I, I think it would, they did some play on words of the six degrees of Kevin Bacon because it was how many steps before I have domain. But in this one, it's like one step. <laughs> you, you have one account and bam. So yeah, I, it's not super surprising that uh, someone that has even basic privileges in the AD can get to... Uh, the uh, the domain account, the domain admin, but wow, this one is interesting. And like you said, I think the reporter's great. I, I, I where the name, of, I think the institute, or at least the place he blogged about this was the Institute for Cyber Risk. So a really good blog post on it for sure. And I'm sure there's probably even a more detailed report somewhere as well. And those were just two of the vulnerabilities as a part of this roundup. So if you are a Microsoft shop, make sure you test and deploy these fixes as quickly as possible. I do say test because as of like a few hours before we record yeah, this, there have been the rumblings one? about, uh, I believe it's the patch for this one causing yeah. some authentication failures within an NTLM environment because of uh, some changes they made of the certificate process. So definitely test it. Um, it does seem, at least in my limited reading on that, to only affect uh, authentication to domain controllers where you have it installed. I'd say those are probably the ones where you want this fix first and foremost, though. But either way, keep an eye out. Might see a out-of-band fix from Microsoft to uh, patch any potential issues with that vulnerability. Um, and then finally, I wanted to end this week with an update on my new favorite cybersecurity topic, and that is satellite hacking. Uh, so last week, the US Secretary of State, uh, Antony Blinken, wrote a statement publicly attributing acid rain, uh, which is a wiper malware uh, that was used in the attack in February 24th, to Russia. So acid rain is the name of a wiper malware tar that specifically targets MIPS architecture hardware of Viasat modems. Uh, and this malware is what Russia started deploying in the lead up to their attack against Ukraine. Uh, so back in it's probably early March, uh, Sentinel-1, uh, who conducted the initial analysis, um, put out basically their discovery of this acid rain malware, which they found several similarities between it and the old wiper module of the VPN filter malware. Um, this was the wiper that was used to take down around 6,000 wind turbines belonging to uh, the German um, wind turbine, I guess, Enercon. power provider, Enercon. Cool name. Sounds like something out of Terminator. Um, back in late February. And it's also affected um, many customer or uh, consumer grade um, Viacom modems all throughout Ukraine as well. Um, so there was that bit of an update, which is kind of just closure on what we already suspected back in February was caused by Russian state-sponsored attackers. Uh, but also a quick tidbit from uh, Elon Musk recently, where he says Russia has been ramping up their attacks against Starlink internet access within Ukraine. Uh, and he says, without success. Uh, this also goes along with a Pentagon official confirming that Starlink has been fighting off jamming attacks. Uh, he mentioned this at a conference just a few weeks ago, too. So 
was it this year or last year where we had that it's, prediction? It's, it was this year. It's this year, although I, I like I was about to say the same thing, Mark. I think we we pretty much get an honorary pass for that prediction already. But I was going to ask, is it I, really the prediction is we would see at least one space hack? What we're seeing is really the, the core of the prediction. We said there would be satellite hack attempts. There's going to be a lot of focus on satellite. They're hackable. I wonder if so far it seems, though, that we've we the attacks are attempting but we're, the community is fighting them off so i guess the only question we'll have to ask at the end of the year is do we get credit for it if satellites don't go down if it's just the, these examples of attacks happening yeah i mean so they're technically hacking the modems currently and not necessarily the satellite, satellite itself yeah but it was uh, the prediction I mean, was ex essentially expect a space hack during 2022 I feel like we are pretty dang close if we aren't nah. already willing to give ourselves a pat on the back for that one. I was. I was just being a stickler. I think this is a clear win already. Even In fact, I think we were almost considering a clear win even during February. But it's uh, at this point, I don't think uh, I don't think anyone will have to, to tell us that, oh, there's no satellite hacking. It's been pretty obvious lately that uh, that's certainly a, a topic to continue keeping an eye on for the rest of the year, especially with the likes of like China and Russia both announcing their they've got various anti-satellite, I guess, physical attacks that they've been testing in outer space. Uh, it's only a matter of time before we see potential digital ones bringing something down too. We didn't even get into it, but with private companies starting to do space battle and soon, I think you're going to have political and governmental worries about the control, who controls the moon, who controls Mars, uh, nation state interests versus corporation interests. What if corporations are the first to Mars? So with all of this weird societal and, and governmental corporate pressure, and potential now that we're actually getting closer to putting more and more things, not only in space in our orbit, but on other planets. Uh, shoot, when you're automating a lot of this, when it's not necessarily people up there that are protecting assets you put on the moon or whatever, or in orbit, cyber attacks are what's gonna happen. So I think uh, we have a fun, <laughs> let's hope it's not bleak future of a lot of space hacks coming up in the next few decades. I mean, I was fully on board with trying to be on Elon Musk's first rocket ship off the planet to Mars, but you know, if we're going <laughs> to be under cyber off. attack from Fancy Bear, <laughs> then maybe I want to hold off for a little bit. I, I don't know. Yeah, Fancy Bear, who, who knows, could even be the U.S. because I'm sure even the U.S. government doesn't necessarily want a single corporation to own a section of Mars without them having some say. <laughs> It'd be interesting to see Man, what happens. What a time to be alive. I'm we're we're being purposely bleak, actually. Humanity has worked these things out. I'm sure it won't be that bad. But I I you know, a lot of stuff we send in space is controlled by technology. So let's expect some cyber attacks to happen there. I'm glad they've left our, our cool new satellite alone. Super exciting. Or yeah. Or not satellite, telescope. <laughs> oh, yeah, for now. <laughs> Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept or some symbol. Um, both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you'll hear from us next week.